take first watch. to an all-new Calamitous episode of the First Watch Podcast. I am Zach, and I'm here with Cole. How are you? I feel like throwing a party. How about you? Good. I hope that uh, it doesn't burn down. No guarantees. <laughs> we are back here once again to discuss one of our favorite films of the Czechoslovak New Wave, and joining us is Riley from the Jams and Tea Podcast. How are you? I'm great. Happy to be back. If you listen to our first couple episodes, you know that each one of these has a theme. We talked about daisies and anarchism, as well as formal experimentation. And then we talked about Cremator and its relationship with Nazi occupation, the tenets of fascism, and things that were going on in Czechoslovakia throughout World War II. During both of those episodes, though, we really can't avoid but talk about the context of Czechoslovakia politically. That is the communist regime that was in power from the end of World War II all the way through the 1990s, and thus right smack in the middle here during the new wave in the mid-1960s. And that is the topic of today's episode, is how these films, how every single film in the movement basically, relates to the politics of communism and the specifics of the regime during this era. And to do that, we're going to be discussing Milos Forman's most famous Czech-language film, The Fireman's Ball. Before we get there, Riley, have you been able to catch up with anything lately? I did happen to watch Ron Howard's Apollo 13 this week. Uh, It was just something about... How do I... I don't have a good reason for why I watched it. I just wanted yeah, to. Yeah, I was going to say, did something inspire that? Did you like see a post about it or anything? To be perfectly honest, I've had a really crap week at work. A lot of things to do. And so on my lunch break, I just ended up reading about the Apollo missions <laughs> and just reading about the history of, of American space travel for some reason, just because it was a great way of switching my mind off from all the work I had to do. And I found it all really fascinating. And it occurred to me as I was doing this, just trying to kill time and trying to switch my brain off, that I'd never actually seen Ron Howard's Apollo 13. Now, of course, I'm not a huge fan of Ron Howard as an auteur, you know, not exactly someone who comes to mind as one of the best and brightest, but to give him his credit, Apollo 13, I think, is probably one of my favorite American blockbusters of the 90s, just because of how faithful a retelling of that story it is, how deftly it avoids a lot of the baggage or oversimplification that could have ruined that story. It's such an economical and focused and detail-oriented account of that disastrous space mission. And the performances are great. As I say, the attention to detail is excellent. The level of tension that's maintained throughout that film I thought was really, really impressive. These were the impressions I'd gathered from what people that I trusted said about it. So I was like, okay, I want to actually sit down and see how well this does tell the story, how much it Hollywoodizes it. And I was pleasantly surprised by how little it did that got me thinking about and got me kind of longing for examples or I guess more of a trend in in these kinds of Hollywood tellings of this story where you actually get a lot out of the movie for its detail-oriented qualities, not to gloss over or to oversimplify the nitty-gritty realities of the story that it's telling. And Howard seemed to really understand that if he had done those things, not only would it have made the film less interesting, but it would have removed a lot of the tension and a lot of the emotional engagement of the storytelling. The story is incredibly engaging because you are being thrown into the minutiae of all of the engineering failures and all of the ergonomics failures that contributed to that trip and that made it go wrong, but also that made things go right because you know it was a million to one shot that the men on that trip, not to spoil it if anyone doesn't know, but managed to survive. <laughs> so I'm particularly taken with and really engrossed by films that are able to show an appreciation for and an engagement with those kinds of stories on that molecular level. And also just because that film is a remarkable celebration of the efficiency of cooperation between people when united around a single goal and how well-organized collaborative cooperation can actually bring things back from the brink of destruction. And it was a nice contrast with the film we're going to be discussing today, which is really kind of an example of administrative (laughs) failure and a lot of respects. Everybody working together to goof it the fuck up. (laughs) Yeah, basically. All of what you're saying registers to me as a fellow appreciator of David Fincher's Panic Room, just where (laughs) that level of detail 
makes it more tense, and then it makes it more interesting when they're solving the problem, because all the things have to work together in concert in order to not continue to fail. You know, after we've watched a chain of breakdowns, it's like, how do we put it back together? Mm, Absolutely. For me, we're going to be doing another recording tomorrow where I'll talk about some other stuff. And I know Cole's got a lot of things to mention. (laughs) So I'll actually just toss out another Czechoslovak new wave film that I watched just right after the Fireman's Ball because I was just getting into the mood for this recording. Not one that I had really planned on discussing, but it's called The Ear by Karl Kachinia. And this movie was released originally in 1970. It was banned for 20 years in Czechoslovakia. It's shot in this like really stark black and white style that was really evocative of like John Frankenheimer thrillers. Lots of close-ups, very paranoid kind of style. And it's the story of a man and a woman returning home from a celebration held by the Communist Party in Prague. The man is a deputy minister of a brickworks and a member of the Socialist Party. And they're coming home in the middle of the night, and they're just going at each other like the man and wife in Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf. And the entire film is from the perspective of this couple in their home, like in their bathroom, in their kitchen, in their garden, wherever. And they're just ripping each other apart, like a stage drama, like a Mike Nichols, 1960s, just kind of chest-clutching kind of shit that I really love, except the entire gambit is that the husband is being surveilled by the government. And a lot of the drama that's happening between them is a direct result of their paranoia and suspicion and like the sustained tension of what it is like to be within a regime that turns on its own people for reasons the people don't fully understand. The setup is that they come home and their house has been broken into and bugged. The power's off, the phone is off, and they don't really exactly know why, but they're pretty sure that they know why because his boss has just disappeared and several of his colleagues have just disappeared. And so it is like filthy tense while just also being like really emotionally raw in the way that some of those other more Hollywood comparisons come in. Just a great blend of styles that makes it for like 90 minutes of gauging material that never really lets up on the throttle once the movie begins. So that's more under the radar. I hadn't really heard of it. And so I was like deep diving this movement. It's got production design and costumes by Esther Krumbachova, who I mentioned back on our Daisies episode, who also did costume sets, co-wrote that film. So it's actually included in the Esther Krumbachova set on the Criterion channel if you happen to subscribe to that streaming network called The Phantom of the Czechoslovak New Wave. Really cool when you go through all those, just kind of see how she influenced the style. And one of the things that I want to talk about later in the episode for a movie that Cole will bring up in a while is how effectively her costuming lets you look at somebody and go, that's a member of the Communist Party, and they're up to no fucking good. You just see them and you know who they are, what their affiliation is, what they're up to based on the types of jackets and hats that they're wearing. And it's really compelling in that way. And it's something that I think runs through her work. I think it's something that is notable in the Fireman's Ball, the use of outfits, uniforms, and things to kind of signify who a person is so that even when you're looking at a lot of people at once, you can be like, that's that guy, that's that guy, that's that guy visually. The other thing that I want to very just briefly shout, because it's the recording that we're going to be doing tomorrow, the episode that will be preceding this one, splitting up our Czechoslovak series. I did catch up with all three Guardians of the Galaxy movies by James Gunn. He's got a new one out. It's kind of like the last Marvel movie. (laughs) And they're putting their hope into it after the fucking absolute abject failure of Ant-Man and the Wasp Quantumania. So we hope that you will tune in for that episode. We're going to have kind of a unique podcast lineup for it. But that was a movie that I really enjoyed. Cole will not be joining us Mm -hmm. for that one. So I just kind of wanted to take your temperature on that whole situation. God himself could tell me the new Guardians movie is a masterpiece (laughs) and I would still wait for Disney+. Plus. (laughs) Good time seeing it with the crowd. I greatly enjoyed this new one. How do you feel about the first one? I like it. It's fine. I kind of have an allergy to whatever Gunn's particular style is. Like, I think Guardians, the first one, is fine. I don't think the second one's that great. Suicide Squad gave me a migraine. (laughs) I think he's got a good handle on these characters. And the thing I left feeling about this is that it's like, on one hand, it is a farewell to these characters who he's going to be leaving behind. And on the other hand, it's like a major fuck you to Kevin Feige. Like, I'm walking out the door. I'm never coming back. Good luck ever getting anybody to put this much fucking sauce into one of these again. Bye. (laughs) And just left. Just dropped the mic on the floor and left. This has more energy than 
any of these have had since like 2012 to me. It's been over a decade since I watched one and went, wow, that felt invigorating. That was really fun. Hmm. I don't like the Suicide Squad at all. So I wasn't like shocked that I enjoyed it, but I was pleasantly surprised by mm-hmm. it. So I'm looking forward to talking about that one tomorrow. I will catch up at some point, like several months down the line, when I can watch it at home and folds laundry or whatever, which is what I did actually just the other night with the aforementioned Ant-Man and the Wasp Quantumania. Terrible. The conclusion of the Ant-Man trilogy, the <laughs> supposed setup of the whole new phase with Hang the Conqueror, Although we all know that's out the window now, too, which, you know what? Fine, because the movie's terrible, and frankly, Majors kind of sucked, so. Yeah, I think Feige's got an interesting little option to just jettison here, because he's like, all right, the character didn't work, the movie didn't work, the actor's not going to work, see y'all later. The movie (laughs) outright bombed, which is starting to become more of a common occurrence for Marvel at this point, as we all know, they're kind of in a downward spiral. But what really struck me about Quantumania was just how incredibly ugly it was. Mm. It takes place entirely in the quantum realm, which is supposed to be, you know, like this 70s prog rock album cover come to life. And because it uses volume so extensively and so poorly, it's shallow focus for like 90% of the movie, all ugly muted colors, Every single member of the cast looks like they're being held hostage at that point. <laughs> Michelle Pfeiffer in particular, oh. she does not want to be there. Mm. She looks pissed. <laughs> yeah, it was an abject, horrid little failure. Yeah, I think one of my points of praise for Guardians 3, which I'm sure uses plenty of volume CG and all that kind of stuff, is that it has a lot of practical sets, and they take a lot of care to build out certain worlds and details and make them feel like cohesive mm-hmm. so that it has the kind of vibe of like Roger Corman or Star Trek or Star Wars, like early Star Wars, where you're like dudes in goofy suits in a hallway on a spaceship. Mm-hmm. Just felt tactile in a way that like most of the Marvel shit I've seen lately does not. Yeah, they are drunk with power and too much money over there and the quality is really, really slipping. Have you seen that newest Little Mermaid trailer? I happened to see it last night, which is why yeah, I it up. Yeah, I have. I've also seen the version where there was some kind of coding error in the someone's auditorium. Oh, yeah. And it yeah. played the Transformers trailer on top <laughs> of it like, at the same kind time. Kind of perfectly synced to each yeah. other in a way. Like That also to me looks like, hey, we got a good actress for this, like a good singer for this. Yeah. And then we just surrounded her with noisy bullshit. I'm sure it's going to make a ton of money because those Disney Renaissance remakes in particular, people just eat that right on up. The question I have after Guardians and the question I guess I would have for Little Mermaid is what's next? Because what's the next Disney remake that's going to make a dime after that one? I don't know. Well, God help us all if they decide to remake Frozen because that's going to have America mm. in a chokehold. They already did that once on ABC Family, didn't they? <laughs> Uh, we don't talk about that TV show. <laughs> we don't talk about that. Anything else besides the mouse that you've caught up with? Yeah, someone, a good Samaritan, decided to upload the entire Mario movie onto Twitter, where it was up for nine hours before wow. anybody <laughs> who works for the website noticed that the entire movie was on there. Because yeah. as we know, the website is now being run by a bunch of mice in a trench coat. Awful, horrible did not feel anything, have no connection to any of these characters, so like any kind of reference was just completely lost on me. Mm. The weird thing about Chris Pratt is that for most of the movie, he sounds like Billy Crystal in Monsters, Inc. <laughs> and it just was so distressing to hear. It just dawned on me right now that both of the new Chris Pratt movies, this and Guardians, both have a no sleep till Brooklyn needle drop in them. I wonder how mad that makes James Gunn. I don't have a point to make with that. Just true. Uh, if it helps, knowing all the references and shit does not make that any better, by the way. It does not make the movie any more enjoyable. Good to know, because I just felt absolutely nothing while watching this. It's probably going to be the highest grossing film of the year, so congrats to them, I guess. But That was your follow-up to Peter Pan and Wendy, which we talked about on the Cremator episode, right? Yep. I watched both of those in the same day, and then bottomed it out with a suggestion from you. I don't know why I listened to you, but uh, did catch up with the 2000 Dungeons and Dragons. (laughs) Which, um... Jeremy Irons. Yeah, 
chewing all of the scenery and eating some of the lighting as well and the entire catering table and the director's chair. I saw that movie in theaters 23 so years sorry. ago, whenever the fuck it came out. I was a young person. So that was the first time I had seen it since then, obviously, because it's a really bad movie. But so we did that on Zoom with Morgan and Jake, who've been on the podcast both a handful of times now. That's something that like we kind of became friends doing was just watching movies in that format. And a lot of times it's just kind of nice to watch something that's shit, something that you don't really have to pay your full focus towards because you're talking and you're just among friends. And so like we've watched a lot of bad movies together. And what I want to say about that is like, I think movies like that in the 90s and 2000s set me up with a bad expectation that awful movies are fun to watch because of the ways that they are awful. Mm-hmm. Versus a lot of times I watch a movie that I think is bad and I'm just like, this fucking is boring. I just want to turn this off. Like compared to Mario, which is a more competent mm-hmm. film in just about every way than Dungeons and Dragons, it is way less entertaining, I think. It's way less interesting because it's not kind of a comical piece of shit. Mm-hmm. Yeah, quality control really set in at the studio sometime in the early 2000s. So like now in the Hollywood system, you're never going to get something as gleefully idiotic as 2000 Dungeons and Dragons ever again. Maybe every once in a while something escapes like Morbius or something, but... Right. I've heard good things about the new Dungeons and Dragons film, but admittedly from people who are very heavily involved as Dungeons and Dragons fans of the tabletop game, but apparently some actual care was taken to honor the realities of that game as well as making an entertaining popcorn flick. I don't know if either of you have seen it. Yeah, Yeah, I had fun and like, I don't know shit about any of that, so... Mm. It's from the directors of Game Night, if you ever saw that. Oh, yeah. It's got a bit of panache to it in terms of like formalism, which I thought was the best part. It's like a pretty good little crisp action movie, actually. Reminds me a lot, just throwing it back to the gun. I've compared it a bunch of times to that first Guardians of the Galaxy movie because it's sort of like that's how they set that group together. It just really kind of Mm -hmm. follows the archetypes and all that type of stuff. In terms of Zoom, actually, that. Dungeons and Dragons was part of a double feature for myself, for Morgan, and for Jake. Cole left, because after three shitty movies, you were like, bye. (laughs) I was broken at that point. And uh, I think we actually called up Riley, and then we watched the Alan Moore adaptation of League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, directed by Stephen Morrington. Was there a logic to that? Like, following, (laughs) choosing that in particular? I can't remember. No, it was just sort of like, we started bullshitting about wanting to watch a second movie, Everything that I happened to have downloaded at that time was like, quote unquote, too good. Like the movie I recommended was Jean Yimou's House of Flying Daggers. And Morgan was like, nah, we need something <laughs> a lot shittier than that. Yeah, I always love when we watch a bad movie and we come in a really shit one. We commit to the film. We say, okay, we're going to watch this. And then even when it's actually like a pain in the ass to like figure out a way to watch it, to get it, which we're already (laughs) mentally committed. So it's going to happen. Yeah. You know, even though we know we're going to completely gloss over all of it, essentially. Because it's, (laughs) God, it's just mind numbing. It's just completely, it's mind numbing when it's not thuddingly irritating. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> my favorite part of that movie is that one of its big gambits is that this group of heroes kind of goes from place to place to place particularly in europe from like london to paris to vienna i think and all of them are just like gray they all just look exactly the same well, as each other the whole gambit of that right it's fictional characters you know brought to life and assembled i'm not an expert on the lore right certainly right. the movie didn't help me with that very much but- <laughs> <laughs> they're like Britlet characters specifically. That central gambit of it should be a home run in terms of like making a really fun popcorn flick. It's really silly, obviously playing fast and loose with literary history, whatever. Cool. That's a lot of fun. But what you get is a ragtag team of characters who are fundamentally anonymous. Yeah, sure. This is Dorian Gray from Oscar Wilde's The Picture of Dorian Gray. Functionally, has nothing to do with that book or (laughs) represents that character in no meaningful ways whatsoever, except that we've decided (laughs) that's who he is. So one of the things that I kind of think, it's based on an Alan Moore comic, which is like, you want somebody a lot pulpier to be doing this than he is. You don't want somebody that's like intelligent, trying to like deconstruct the mythos. You just want somebody that puts all these people together and kind of like accentuates their fun attributes and makes something fun. 
our friend Luke wrote in a review of this from earlier in the year. I don't know why he watched it earlier in the year. But he's like, this type of movie, you could have Orlando summoning God-tier Mary Poppins to annihilate Antichrist Harry Potter on the big screen. Like, you can get fucking wild and crazy with this notion of literary characters, particularly from Britain's literary canon. And instead, they're just kind of like, we made a diet Hellboy. It's from the director of the first Blade movie, which I think honestly explains a lot. So that was a fun little, we hadn't had a Zoom double in a minute. Morgan, Jake, and I did the John Wick movies before 4 came out. So it was a fun little chance to kind of get together and watch some real bad movies. <laughs> uh, I might have to catch up with that one. Oh, it's, uh, it's a riot. <laughs> And then I've also been catching up with some new stuff just to see as much as I can. Who knows if things are going to slow down at some point? Because if you haven't heard over here in this part of America, we got a big old strike going on for who knows how long. Support all the writers. Fuck the studio execs. You don't need another yacht. Pay them what they're worth. But in the spirit of that, I saw a movie that aims to be Braveheart, but just cannot overcome the fact that it is a giant pack of lies. (laughs) Oh, God. Yeah caught up with Sisu, which is this action thriller about this old man in Finland during World War II who killed over 300 Russians. Don't ask him why. Nobody asked any (laughs) questions about that at all. Uh, But the Nazis are now fleeing the country. Apparently, in real life, Finland was being a little bit too lenient about that. But they come across this man who is now a prospector, you know, just out in the wilderness looking for gold. They blow up his horse. They take some of his gold. And this guy decides that he is going to kill some Nazis. And I don't know how you make Nazi killing boring, but somehow this movie did it. Yeah, it's a piece of shit. It's uh, yeah, bad. Uh, I knew going to that movie that I would have the exact problem that I did, which is that Finland was allied with the Nazis and making like a Nazi slaughter ha 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 movie in Finland is just fucking stupid. Because it's not honest, and there's no catharsis to it. There's no meaning to it. The only time they ever did anything was during the Lapland War, where like the Soviets had a knife to their back, and they were like, you gotta kick these guys out right now. <laughs> and that's it. It would be a more honest movie if he were killing Soviets, but obviously, we would have to ask why he was doing it with German artillery. <laughs> yeah, it would be pretty freaking awkward. Really left a bad taste in my mouth after all the Czechoslovak movies, which, like as we talked about on the last episode, just have a really nuanced and complicated relationship with that time in their history and they deal with it in a mature and thought-provoking way Mm -hmm. and that's a country that was occupied not allied occupied versus the Finns were just like we have the same enemy in the soviets Mm -hmm. yeah as a john wick knockoff i emphatically do not recommend yeah that's the other thing is that it just doesn't deliver on that stuff yeah i would have gotten over some of these things Mm -hmm. if it were fun but it's not fun yeah it's also bizarrely cartoonish. Yeah. Like, he should have died at least a dozen times, and yet somehow he just keeps on going. Term Sisu, I think, even means, it's like a word for national pride. It's like a yeah. term that means toughness. It opens with the title card saying that the word cannot be translated, and yet they give you a translation anyways. <laughs> <laughs> Left a sour taste yeah. trying to marry this notion of, like, national pride, national identity to, like... Mm-hmm. You brought up a movie that was from last year, The Woman King, which is another historical fantasy where it's like, what if this African nation that traded slaves decided to stop and just like be against that? But I think that there's a lot of power in an American black woman who is the writer and director going back to this other country and exploring that fantasy from the outside versus like, we are Finnish, this is a movie about being Finnish, and we lied. Mm-hmm. And at least that one has better action, a much better cast. Yeah. Just better filmmaking overall. You just feel more inspired by it. But if you're looking for an action kick, and you've already seen John Wick, I would recommend Light Society, the debut feature film by Nita Manzor. It's set in London, and it's about this martial artist in training, Ria Khan, who wants to become this great martial artist and work in movies, even though her family doesn't believe in her and doesn't think that she's going to go anywhere with it. And she's also convinced that her older sister, Lena, is going to become a great artist one day, even though her sister has returned home from college, having dropped out, and is in a creative funk. 
and her sister starts going out with this guy set up through the parents. He's young, he's rich, he's this great doctor, yada, yada, yada. And after about a month, she gets engaged and Rhea believes that she has to save her sister from being trapped in a horrible, loveless marriage for the rest of her life. This is basically Edgar Wright light, but I did enjoy it quite a bit. I just had a really good time. I saw this one before Guardians 3 just yesterday. Mm -hmm. The tone of it and the form of it are really fun. Like the choreography, how it's put together, how it's edited. Just really strong directorial effort. When I looked up Manzur, I learned that she was a television writer. And I was like, that makes sense. Because Mm -hmm. that felt like a TV plot. In the sense of just like, it hits a lot of very conventional beats. You have the second act low point where the main character has learned her lesson. And then the entire third act's like, ha ha ha, we're just going to have fun with it now. Yeah. It was like a little bit too paint by numbers for me. But I really liked the chemistry between the two sisters. Yeah, they were great. I would watch them in anything, honestly. I also really loved the evil mother-in-law-to-be, played by Nimra Bucha. Just really fun, lip-smacking evil villain. She was a riot. The other director besides Edgar Wright that it brought to mind for me was Matthew Vaughn did mm-hmm. like Kick-Ass and the Kingsman movies. Like, yeah. like, just somewhere in that range. It's like a lot of zip. It's kind of a wry British sense of humor to it. Yeah. I was interested because it is a British Pakistani family. And even though it is a purely UK production, it just kind of struck me as interesting having just seen Joyland, which is I think the first production from Pakistan that I've ever seen. Did you get a chance to catch up with that? I did actually. I caught it at its last show time at a theater in North Hollywood. Fighting LA traffic was not fun, but I made it. Yes. Worth it? Loved it. Yeah. Absolutely loved it. Devastating. I think that might be our next main new release episode that we do together after we finish up these Czech films. Absolutely. Might be a little bit late, but its release is going to be a skosh funky. I had a good laugh at the sheer number of studio production logos at the front of that movie. Oh I felt god. like it was a Family Guy skit, how many of them there was, were. Oh my god, I was like, what is happening? What? It was like at least a dozen, right? If not yeah, more? Yeah, it had to be. Because it got to like seven or eight, and I was like, okay, all right, movie's starting, next logo. All right, the movie's starting, next logo. <laughs> you might have been saved by that, even if you had been late. <laughs> oh, yeah, even if I was late. <laughs> the half hour of opening studio credits probably would have saved me, but... I'm glad that all of those companies came together to give us just an amazing, amazing movie like Joyland. Yeah, particularly as I think it's banned in Pakistan, right? Or yeah. it had its release kind of fucked with. Yeah, because they saw what it was about and they were like, mm, we don't want to let people see that. We don't want people to think for their own. Yeah, so my two favorite films of the year thus far are that and No Bears, which are both just absolutely banned in their home countries. <laughs> Listen, the filmmakers who get banned, they're cooking with heat. And I was going to say that leads us right, right, right in the thick of today's topic, as well as today's film. As I've already mentioned, this is about Milos Schwarman's The Fireman's Ball and its relationship to communism. This was one of the earlier Czechoslovak wave films that I had seen. Not the first, not the fifth, maybe, but like one of the earlier ones. And it was the first, I think, where it was unavoidable that it was thematically about communism, very specifically. And in that way, it was kind of a key that started to unlock a greater degree of awareness about the films that I had seen and the films that I would go on to see. Because I think that you can watch Daisies, and if you don't read a whole lot about it or you don't listen to the First Watch podcast episode about it, you could come away thinking that that's just kind of random and silly. You don't necessarily get a clear thesis statement that says, this is what this movie is about. And that's not really what you get in The Fireman's Ball either. I don't want to characterize it that way. But when you watch it, you cannot avoid that it is directly about administrative failure. It's about disorganization. It's about politics in an unavoidable way. And that's something that's really interesting because I think that no matter what film you're talking about, Daisy's, The Cremator, some of the medieval films that we're going to be talking about next week are even allegorical representations of what it was like for these directors, these young filmmakers, to come up within communism, either about the specific political realities ranging from simple inefficacy all the way up to like people being fucking disappeared and murdered by the government, like mm. from that range, that drastic range, mm. to what the psychology of its people was like uh, administratively or in terms of just 
average everyday people what it was like for them and their kind of subjective experience, which is really a big part of like what all the formalism mm. of this movement gets into. And I think it's really, really key to the fireman's ball. Right off the bat, I think that that metaphor mm. of firemen is itself very political because what does a fireman do? They rush in and they kind of have this heroic presence or heroic stature within a community because they rush in during a disaster and they put out fires, right? But that right there, it's a reactive type of heroism where you show up once something is already burning yeah. and you leave and it's a pile of ashes. And that itself is certainly a metaphor for not only communism, but specifically the Soviet Union, which mm -hmm. came in at the end of World War II and helped push out the Nazis. Mm -hmm. And so it's a metaphor right there. And then I think the second half of it is that it's inherently local because you wouldn't ever have a fire brigade that was from the next town over. Your fire brigade is from your community. And so it's about this kind of metaphor of communism mm -hmm. from the perspective of an extremely provincial and specific and subjective point of view of these characters within this village. Theory effectively communicates, as you say, the wider administrative failures of Eastern European governments under communism in this period, and does so by essentially conveying that those wider administrative failures filter down and those processes operate in a very similar way on a much smaller micro scale as well. And so you have that same broad structure operating and the same limitations and problems that come out of that situation on multiple different levels. And, you know, I think it's interesting that Milos Forman said that he didn't aim to make an allegorical film. This film was very directly inspired by an experience that Milos Forman had attending a fireman's ball and observing the kind of farcical nature of the very unprepared and lackadaisical way these people conducted mm. themselves in that context. I like, Zach, what you say about how despite the film being based on a very specific and literal experience, it does function quite effectively and quite powerfully or metaphorically or allegorically as a representation for this particular style of governance or this particular style of crisis management, I suppose, where essentially you are entirely reactive in the nature of your existence and ultimately you're responding to a problem by lacquering that problem. And what's funny is that even in the one instance in which the firemen themselves have to do their jobs, <laughs> there's a hilarious inefficiency with which they're unable to even do the one thing that they're responsible for doing. You've watched them for almost an hour at this point, fail to do so many different things, and then the thing that they're trained to do, they can't do that either. And ultimately, their intrusions and their attempts make things worse. I love this film because it doesn't take great pains, I think, to broadly reflect larger political communist structures. It is just very modest in its ambitions, and it tells a very small story, and it tells it in a very broad, even slapstick-esque tonal way that you get completely absorbed within. And yes, the more you process it, and the more you think about it in the context of Czechoslovak society and the Czechoslovak sociopolitical structures, it becomes obvious how representative it is. But it's not a film that takes great pains to point out and to kind of leer and to make grand sweeping didactic statements about that. I think the film in sticking and adhering so strictly to that very goofy, silly tonal style, it disguises a lot of the darker subtext within this film. And effectively, from my perspective, conveys it more potently than if those things were made very, very obvious. Like, for instance, you know, we talked about with Daisies how the grand banquet in that film, not even just the grand banquet, but the frequent reoccurrence of food as a motif in that film was a reminder of the ongoing hunger crisis and how inefficiently that was being dealt with, if you could even say it was being dealt with at all. With the raffle in this film right. as well, the way in which this is treated, again, very farcically, with the stolen cheese and all these kinds of food going missing and everything kind of disappearing it's just kind of treated purely as this inevitable result of this callous and thoughtless mismanagement as we've hinted at the fireman's ball is a 1967 comedy film directed by milos foreman you may have heard of him particularly some of his american films we'll talk about that later but this is about a volunteer fire department in a small Czechoslovak town who decide to organize a ball, including a raffle and a beauty pageant. And this is all in honor of the chief's 86th birthday. It's coming up in age. He's going to retire. So they're going to throw a big party for the entire town. And 
every single thing that you could imagine going wrong goes wrong until it is like an anarchic whirlwind of like almost Looney Tunes-esque comedy. That 86 is really funny. They even comment on it. Yeah. Because that opening scene, they're passing around this little ceremonial thing that they're going to yeah, give Yeah, the axe. They're going to hand them a little axe. I'm like, why didn't we give him this on his 85th birthday? And somebody goes, well, we didn't know that he had cancer on his 85th birthday. <laughs> and they're like, well, yeah, now it's going to seem like we're just giving it to him because he has cancer. And they have this entire discussion right off the bat about how like, it's the law in Czechoslovakia that if a patient has cancer, a doctor doesn't have to disclose it. So just right off the bat, you've got like layers of jokes that are also like really politically and socially loaded. And it instantly characterizes this group of people in their reactionary nature of like, oh, he's sick, so we better give him a present to tell him that we like him, even though 86th birthday. (laughs) And I think that's kind of like arbitrary and haphazard way of going about doing everything that they do in this movie. They could not take care of a pet frog if they needed to. The two big things, two big events of this movie, one Riley's already explained there's a raffle where they've got a big table full of food, gifts, liquor, things of that nature. And then the other one is the beauty contest that run all the way throughout this film that are kind of like the two key elements. And they're really just like both extended gags of poor planning, lack of planning, poor execution, no execution. Right in the middle of that, though, we have this opening scene. It might be my favorite part of the entire movie where they've painted a sign. And on the sign, there's a cabin, and the cabin's on fire, and you see the whole fire brigade working to put it out. They're hanging this up in honor of the celebration. And you've got a guy on top of a (laughs) fucking ladder who is burning the edges of this thing because they hung it up before he did this for some fucking reason. And that's the entire sense of humor of the film is that you just enter it in media res, and you're a bystander who might be going, now, why would you do it like that? (laughs) Did nobody think we could have done that on the ground? There's absolutely no rhyme or reason to anything they do. And that's also your introduction to the raffle, because the entire incident on the ground while the guy's on top of the ladder is these two guys are arguing about a chocolate cake that has already gone missing hours before the party has started. That culminates with that great shot where you've seen him on top of the ladder so much, and all you see is the bottom of it go slide out and go immediately flat. (laughs) That detail with the chocolate cake having already gone missing as well, it's like a great little forecast for how basically everything that goes wrong in this movie is something that could so easily have been foreseen and indeed that there was a lot of time to resolve if the focus was there. It's not as though these bumbling idiots happen into things going wrong. It's that there's an established setup and a lack of care that has completely doomed the entire enterprise from before it's even begun. Mm -hmm. And you can sense that. It's not necessarily a story of things going wrong. It's a story of things never having been right in the first place. Mm -hmm. And just the sort of chaos that naturally arises from that and then becomes more extreme as the consequences of their apathy and of their lack of consideration and organization starts to have actual human costs. It's not going to work if you build on a crooked foundation, which is basically what all this movie is entirely about. Mm. On that sign that they're designing that ultimately ends up catching fire and burning and not being hanging from the ceiling anymore. It says that they're going to have a raffle and it says that they're going to have a beauty contest, but they don't even know how many contestants they want until they've already decided and advertised that they're doing it. I think that you can't help but watch this and go like, all right, how should they have done this? How would I have done this? And it's like, why don't you set up a table over there that says, come volunteer to be in the beauty pageant? And you have two guys sitting at the table, and you have the women come to you. And instead, what they're doing is they're, like, going around the party fucking absolutely randomly trying to pick people out and put them on this list, and hoping that they will also agree to do it. One of the most difficult-to-watch scenes in the entire film is when they're trying to announce the winner, (laughs) and there's just this, like, complete, I don't even know how to describe it. Nothing's been rehearsed. Nothing's, Nothing's been rehearsed. been discussed. Any of the participants, like the women themselves, are completely disengaged and bewildered by the entire exercise. It's one of the most embarrassing sequences. In fact, the whole way in which the events leading up to that, with regard to that particular subplot, are handled are like, it's some of the broadest comedy in the film, but it's also some of the most uncomfortable as well. Mm. Trying to apply this already proven inefficient 
organizational strategy to this completely frivolous but also obviously very objectifying and dehumanizing endeavor that's supposed to be this fun lark essentially it's one of the most uncomfortable gags that the film leans into and it really kind of rides it i think in that first half absolutely you have like a moment where they all go up on the balcony so that they can look down at people's blouses and shit like that and Mm. then they're like no 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 no. we're doing this wrong we gotta go down and look at their legs It's a difficult thing to sell scenes like that without you just feeling utterly repulsed. But fortunately, Foreman, an expert director, has already established that these characters are, in a certain sense, and within the tone of this film, so incompetent and so unprepared that it's difficult to really assign malice to them. Mm. You're just kind of bewildered and sort of embarrassed for them. You can tell that for all their objectification, they're not going to get anywhere with it because they can't do anything right. Whatever harm will be created will be like a byproduct of their idiocy, not of their malice, per se. Because their malice isn't going to have any fucking traction. Right, and any embarrassment would be more on them than on the contestants of the beauty pageant, who all end up locking themselves inside of a bathroom and refusing to participate. (laughs) So they have to go back out into the crowd and drag more random people out until we have an old woman crowned as the victor of this pageant that's one of the great images of the entire movie because she's just up on stage like throwing her arms out throwing kisses (laughs) i also love the one of you've got the fireman who's kind of like among this group of idiots he's the butt of all the jokes and he's just holding out the crown while that entire ceremony is going on he's just like pointing at it crown look at this i imagine that's how the coronation went this morning (laughs) yeah very topical (laughs) very very timely something that makes that tone work and those scenes work i think is that you have so many non-professional actors like all the fire brigade are basically played by professional comedic actors you can see them in other milos Forman films etc but a lot of the party goers who this film focuses on quite a lot actually are mostly amateur actors they're mostly extras and it's a really unique style that this film uses that milos Forman had used before where He basically always has a second and sometimes even a third camera roving around this scene. And their entire function is to film extras. So a lot of this film, a lot of the images of this movie, you're just watching extras who are being told to stay in constant character as if they are just members at a party. And you can see this technique used in earlier Foreman films, as I've mentioned, particularly all of which are collaborations with a filmmaker I brought up on our Daisies episode named Ivan Passer, who co-wrote and co-directed Foreman's debut film, Black Peter. Black Peter's kind of like the 400 blows of the Czechoslovak new wave. It's just like about a kid who's frustrated in the world and trying to figure that shit out. Very, very, very Truffaut-inspired. Good movie, not exceptional, quite like Loves of a Blonde, which is my second favorite of all, second or third favorite of all these Czechoslovak new wave movies. Again, co-written and co-directed by Ivan Passer. Also has a big party scene, quite like what the Fireman's Ball is in its entirety in the middle of it. The setup of Loves of a Blonde is you're in a factory town that has a ratio of 16 to 1 women to men due to bad communist planning. It's a textile factory that's like all women, which means that this entire town where the factory is is overloaded with young women and almost no young men. And so all the women are like ferociously horny is the setup of this movie. And so there's like a big social party that they have where they bring in men, particularly from the army and from other different parts of Czechoslovakia into this town so that the women can like have a party, have a man to dance with, hug, kiss, whatever. (laughs) And it's a phenomenal movie that I think also makes great, great, great usage of what we see here in the Fireman's Ball of just filming extras at that party and getting a sense of this community and what they're like together and how these parties are held. Because I think that's something that elevates the fireman's ball a lot is that even though everything is going wrong, everybody's having a fucking blast. Mm. They're throwing back beers, they're dancing to the music, they're having a good time even though the organization has gone to shit. Mm. And I think it's broadly emblematic of how people will adapt any type of situation no matter what because they're still people they couldn't really care less about any of the structure that the firemen are trying to enforce on this whole event they're just there to have a good time they're there to socialize they engage in things like the raffle and they pay mind to things like the beauty pageant to the extent that those things are entertaining really the 
firemen themselves are more engaged in all of the things that they're trying to organize than any of the people who are there to supposedly enjoy or participate in that. And even they are hilariously out of touch with what they're actually trying to accomplish. It's representative of how communism probably really works in the day-to-day lives of its people. It's a political reality that I think we all are somewhat aware of. Is like, your daily life goes on. The food shortage affects you. But really, what the people are doing in some government administrative office somewhere doesn't really affect your neighborhood and how you talk to your neighbors. One of the ways that's reflected in the Fireman's Ball is all of these characters on the cast sheet do not have names. They have titles. But in the film, they're all referring to each other by first names and like informal names and things like that. So there's a disconnect between the idea of their official stature and title and how they actually treat each other, just like there's a disconnect between the supposed events of this party and how people are really interacting with it and enjoying it. And every once in a while, that political force will come in personally. And that's normally where things go really, really wrong for the people who live under these regimes or systems. Uh, A great example of that is another Czechoslovakian way film, a report on the party and guests by Jan Vinek, which was, and I quote, banned forever by the Communist Party at the time once the film was released. It's this political satire film about a group of affluential people who go out into the woods to have a picnic and celebrate this birthday for an influential figure. And over time, over the course of the party, they're surrounded by this group of suspicious figures who never really reveal who they are, but they're meant to be the government communists. You know, they're the people in charge. And it's also about a party, but it's a much darker and angrier and more pointed film that's really laying it to how cruel and needlessly vicious the system could be when it was being used and abused by people with just a urge to hurt as many people as they could. That is my favorite Czechoslovak New Wave film so far. It's a good one to be a favorite. It just crawls right under my skin for like the entire time. Something that's really interesting about Niemic is that his whole deal is that films exist in fantasy, Mm -hmm. that they exist by their own logic in their own version of reality. And that movie, it immediately struck me. It's like Buñuel directing a Kafka story. Kafka being the kind of government Byzantine forces of like, you know, the trial where they've got you in front of a stand and they're not telling you what the fuck you're being accused of, but you're being accused. But it's got that kind of Buñuel fantasy surreal absurdism that I think makes that kind of thing work even better than it would in something like Costa Gavras The Confession, which is about Czechoslovak communist show trials. Because that movie is so gritty and real, kind of like Bradley was talking about all the way back with Apollo 13. That movie, like all Gavras movies, is like facts about what's going on. But because it's meant to be so confusing and disorienting, it sometimes feels like it shortchanges you on all of the information that it could mm-hmm. versus in this Niemic film, it's like more along the lines of investigation of a citizen above suspicion where it is very abstract, where it's very emotionally charged to the point that that movie opens and the couples that end up getting like accosted and put in front of the trial are laying on some blankets, having a completely nonsense conversation. Like that dialogue is not decipherable but you can tell that they're talking about like party secrets they're talking about like hushed weird things and just a really great psychological thriller i guess yeah it's the dark house mirror version of this film almost you could argue it has a single character who has the bravery to just stand up and fucking leave and it ends with him being chased through the woods by dogs which i think kind of connects it back to Diamonds of the Night, which Jan Niemic also directed. Like Mm. Ivan Passer, who I just mentioned, a guy that got to make two films and then was just banned for fucking ever. Yep, forced to leave the country. I believe Passer was banned by the time this movie, The Fireman's Ball, came out, and so he only co-wrote it and did co-direct it. And then after Mm. this, both he and Foreman dipped and went to the United States. Uh, Ivan Passer made Cutter's Way and a few other movies in Hollywood. Foreman made some movies you might have heard of, uh, like, you know, hair or... Uh, like Here's the first the one other you ones? think of, not like Amadeus <laughs> no, exactly. or Goosnest. That's uh. the bit. <laughs> That's where I was going. No, uh, yeah, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest and the best best picture winner of the 1980s, Amadeus. Yeah, absolutely. Very rarefied company. The guy won 
two Oscars for Best Director, both of those films. So mm. he did all right. He had to leave his homeland, but you know what? He did pretty well here. This film did earn Czechoslovakia a Best Foreign Language Film Oscar nomination. Yes. I don't know if they ever won during this period. Well, The Shop on Main Street won, although it's kind of an outlier compared to the rest of the new wave because it's not like satirical or anything like that it's a much more straightforward drama which uh you know that's what the academy usually prefers so uncontroversial <laughs> i think that there's a sharp division that you can draw between the czech films and the slovak films one of them is that the slovak films that have endured are more so on that fascist nazi bent as opposed to czech films being a little bit more about the communism it's not literally one-to-one like that, but even The Cremator, which is a Czech film by a Slovak director, obviously you can see how it mm-hmm. kind of blends both, in mm-hmm, a sense. Yeah. Oh, and also, just to drop in real quick, Lucy Watch Trains also won the Oscar for Best International Film. Right, yeah. I As it fucking should. Yeah. One thing I think is interesting about the narrative framing and structure of this movie is, and one of its most potent allegorical points, I think, is obviously the whole event is oriented around honoring this leader figure. And there's an obvious allegory there for how these organizational structures essentially exist to hoist themselves up and blindly adhere to and honor one particular leader. And it's just particularly amusing to me how ineffectual and disengaged that person is in this film, basically passive to the entire event. He doesn't really ever give any kind of sense of leadership. One of the defining moments of the film at the very end as well, suddenly this doddering old man who is the foundation of the film's narrative essentially, but has kind of been irrelevant to the vast majority of it, gives this impassioned speech, which is the comic setup for the reveal that his gift has been stolen. The look on his face (laughs) when he opens that case. It's one of the funniest moments of the film. It's just this like complete capitulation, this complete kind of acceptance. And (laughs) I can't even really, even in this one moment where you would expect some kind of, you know, bold, violent response or something. It's just this. Right. You fucking idiots. Yeah, exactly. I think that it's one of the film's most potent strands in terms of its commentary, but also in terms of its humor. He's also like, he's got this little funny fucking little mustache comb that just makes him look so ridiculous to me. And I think it's important that that whole scene follows what's one of the funniest, but also the most openly tragic subplots in the film for Mr. Havelka, an old man whose home burns down during the party and the fireman brigade goes out, but they can only take some furniture out and a couple of animals and they throw snow at it. And unfortunately, this guy's house burns to the ground. And they call him Grandpa mm-hmm. like more often than they address him by his name. Yeah. I don't know if that's a translation thing, but it just struck me. And then they take one of his tables and they just use it to sell more alcohol to people who are standing there oh, watching yeah, the fire. Yeah. <laughs> which is like hilarious, but also just horribly depressing at the same time because... Yeah, they can't run a party, but they also can't save anyone's home either. One of the most cutting moments. Right. Just fucking shoveling snow. It's very provincial fire brigade. Like, shockingly, oh, that's the plan, huh? Which, that's the entire film. In case you were wondering, firemen across the country were so offended that Milos Forman, (laughs) after the movie came out, had to go on a national apology tour. Wow. (laughs) Going from town to town saying, no, I did not want to make the firemen look bad. This is all about the bigger system. Yeah, and one of the yeah. most, I think, brutal moments in the film as well, following that sequence, when they decide to ask everyone to turn in their raffle tickets so that they mm-hmm. can reclaim the prizes for this poor old man, which is already from the go. Like, it's obvious that the vast majority of the raffle items have been stolen. And you get one of the film's funniest gags as well, which is, you know, we're going to turn all the lights out and everyone's going to put everything back and it's going to be fine. <laughs> and of course, the most brutal and cutting part as well. For as much as Foreman just lets this be a really ridiculous slapstick comedy for the most part, he does have these moments where he does, you know, really pointedly land some jabs. And when they're explaining this plot to the old man, how they're going to help, he's saying to you, this is not helpful to me. I need money. Yeah. <laughs> they are confronted by the reality of the ineffectual nature of what they're doing. And they just have to screen it and just completely shut it out. I want to talk about a couple different little performance moments. One of them is by Jan Voststriel, who is the acting chief of this fire brigade. So we've got the retired chief, white-haired guy with the mustache. This is the dude in the glasses who's the leader of this pack of idiots. And when the fire bell first starts, he has this great 
home and it's one of the parts of it that's like funny and cutting at the same time where he's like a fire <laughs> like he seems enthusiastic or excited that somebody's fucking house is burning down and just in general i think that his performance is terrific one of my favorite little bits of physical acting is when they've brought all the girls from the beauty pageant in to be observed and they're bringing them in one by one. And he's just like completely fucking unimpressed. And he's just like dinging that little bell. Like, ding, <laughs> ding, ding, ding. Like one girl walks in who has like a larger chest. And he's like staring at her. Stops dinging for a second. Just goes right back to dinging his fucking bell. That little sequence, by the way, I don't know. I, I think maybe in the process of bringing up report on the party and the guests, there is a certain like you've been brought in front of a panel of men. They're going to observe you. Oh, and it's all these young women, there's obviously like sexually loaded elements to that, to the point that even their parents come in and try to either observe what these people are doing, mm-hmm. what these men are doing with their daughters, or actively yeah. removing their daughters from that situation. But I also think that there's something politically loaded to that setup as well, within the context of Czechoslovak show trials and some of the things that we've already discussed, being lined up in front of this group of fire. Absolutely. People, which... As Riley's already mentioned, there's just always that duality where the scene is being played for total absurdity, for total silliness, mm. while I think having a little bit more of a loaded meaning too. Yeah. There's a dynamic to it as well, and you can read it through the lens of sexism, and I think you can also read it through basically any lens of power, where it's essentially a system that operates not by explicitly saying and doing these specific things to people, but operating through suggestion, essentially, and operating through indirectness. So, like, those women are coming in, and one woman just sort of starts taking her clothes off, and the men are just bewildered by this, because, you know, the way that they function, I guess the way that they justify doing awful things by creating the circumstances where those things happen and benefit them, but not explicitly instructing it. And so when this woman just starts doing it, the men are bewildered and kind of confronted by the reality of what their behavior is suggesting they want. And the scene is so long as well. Like it's just so prolonged and just kind of excruciating to watch these awkward men try to like emotionally negotiate what they should do to maintain their dignity while at the same time inescapably getting off essentially on the situation. I think the dad calls them horny old goats, which seems pretty apt. (laughs) Yeah, I found it to be a really affecting scene in that regard. And again, it's one of those moments tonally in the film where it's kind of miraculous that the whole thing doesn't just collapse or that the humor of it doesn't completely fall over because it is still broadly quite a funny scene. And a lot of that, I think, comes from the performances of the women as well, who I presume are all non-professional actors. Correct. They bring a certain personality and a certain sort of, I guess, realism, to choose an obvious word, to it that saves it from being potentially just so dark and dour and depressing. There's one other performer that I want to call out really quickly, and that's Milada Zhezhkova, who in this film plays the mother of the fire brigade member who is guarding the raffle table, who steals the head cheese herself. She has the line of the film that I think could almost work as the thesis, which is everybody steals. The setup of this whole thing is just nobody here is an angel. Nobody came here to do the right thing. They came here to fuck under the raffle table and have a good time. That actress, I just want to shout her out really quickly because she's in a couple of my favorite movies, which we've already mentioned today. She's in Closely Watched Trains. She plays the mother of the girl who gets the stamp on her butt. And then she's in Loves of a Blonde. She plays the Milos character's mother mm-hmm. as well. Loves of a Blonde was her first film performance. She was an amateur there. She just got this rapid fire way of talking. And every time I see her, she just brings a smile to my face. She's just kind of the mom of the Czechoslovak new wave. <laughs> and I think that that's so tethered into the tonal balance, as we mentioned, is just that there's so much personality. These just feel like real goofballs. Yeah, it's explosive almost. In the same way that there's sort of a duality to a lot of different parts of this film, that softens them. It makes them more human. It makes them, you know, easier to like hang out with them for the 70 minutes of this movie without being like repulsed or disgusted. But it also sends the political message that it's like, yeah, the people that did the worst of the worst were also just human too. That everything comes down to a human element for better or worse. So it both makes it lighter and softer, but also darker and more realistic. After that house is burnt down, and they present the non-gift to their chief. I just have to say that that final shot, the first mm-hmm. time I saw this movie, really stuck with me. You're out on that yeah. bed of snow, and there's a single bed for this old man who is left empty-handed after his house is burnt down. And he gets under the covers, there's already somebody laying there. And he just decides to get into bed anyway, covers himself up, and just lays there. <laughs> mm-hmm. 
just a great little image. Very absurd, sad, funny, just all these different tones. It's a perfect microcosm of the movie itself and almost the entire Check New Wave as a whole. The system and its effects ultimately ends up in a scenario where you basically have to take care of yourself. And the guy who's already in the bed is there taking care of himself. The poor chap who's had his house burned down has to look out for himself. Because of the behaviors of people with authority and people with power, even if in the context of this film, it's a very sort of limited regional power... Through their selfish actions, they create a situation where other people, as a result of that, and through no fault of their own, have to now act selfishly in order to Mm -hmm. sustain themselves. So one thing begets another. It's a nice little pointed moment that the film ends on. You know, it's funny, it's tragic, it's all those things all at once. It's just the ultimate ironic endpoint to collectivism, that everybody has to steal and look out for themselves. The entire political notion of communism is one collective it's one commune Mm. everybody looking out for everybody and it's just totally not the reality of the situation on any level yeah you could read it through like a kind of anthropological lens and you could say it shows a fundamental lesson about like human nature and the inherent self-serving qualities of being a human being essentially and how that's something that communism never really successfully managed to reconcile meaningfully the reforms that were sweeping through the 60s were based on an idea of giving communism a more human face And so I think that necessarily, like a lot of this commentary is about its lack of compatibility with Czech society, human nature. And I think that broadens it from the local level to the more conceptual communist level to something that's quite universal, because I've already mentioned Kafka, who grew up in Austria under much more fascistic governments. But we have a similar type of literary exploration, because no matter what political regime you live under, oppression is the same and people's reaction to oppression is going to be the same or similar. And so you have these themes that percolate up throughout different parts of the world or within the same movement in Czechoslovakia, regardless of what topic you're talking about. The outfit might be different, but at the end of the day, it's the same old problem that everyone faces. Meet the new boss, same as the The old old boss. boss. Mm. And that, I think, just about wraps us up for this episode. Any closing final thoughts on the film? A remarkably effective satirical comedy. Again, as we've talked about, these sorts of comic elements, certainly more often than not laced with very dark, jet black, tragic undercurrents, are a common recurring theme in this wave of films. But it's nice to be able to interrogate and appreciate how effective a film can be when it's solely committed to that very absurdist and very kind of farcical lens. It's like... Yeah, there's elements of that in The Cremator, but there's also a kind of heavy, kind of dramatic kind of yeah. thickness yeah. to that film that, you know, makes it a little bit, uh, you know, exhausting as an experience. More murder. Yeah, more murder for sure. <laughs> oh, yeah. A lot more. A lot more. <laughs> and it's certainly, I know next week when we talk about Makita Lazarova, that's a fairly yeah. tonally grim film as well. So it's oh. just... an. Uh, you know, between these different episodes that we're doing and between these different films, it's, it becomes easier to appreciate the dynamism of this movement and the different ways that it manifests and makes its various different, obviously very interconnected points. And it's nice to have a film that is as effervescently funny and ridiculous as this one. Yeah, for me, this is one of the funniest movies ever made. It is just an outright riot. I was actually kind of marveling. I think that I managed to pick out four movies that are all cool five stars yeah totally not (laughs) the plan but it worked out that way you nailed it thank you (laughs) i actually so looking forward to talking about marketa as that is the only film of these four that i have not yet seen so oh, really? That's yeah, exciting. Yeah. That. Which, I mean, like, Andre Rublev, Hard to Be a God. This is kind of like a thing. I love this shit. Yeah. <laughs> I relish when I've seen a movie before you, Zach. Yeah. It's increasingly less common, but it's very... Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, this It's going to be great. I am very yeah. excited to revisit this film because I found it profoundly moving the first time I saw it. I'm sure it's going to be a great, juicy finale to the series. Yeah, I can't wait to rewatch it. It's been years and years, but the first time I ever saw it, I felt like I was hit in the head with a club and left to die in the snow and my head was spinning around. So mm. can't wait to go back. Yeah, I'm really excited. I think it's kind of a good extension of an ongoing conversation Cole and I have been having about a certain type of period film that really immerses you in a world that's difficult to relate to or difficult to understand because it's ancient, because it's extinct. So mm-hmm. I think that 
that'll leave us some room to talk about not only some Czechoslovak films, but maybe some other movies that evoke that yeah. same interesting feeling. This is all part of my plan to make you like the assassin. Yes, <laughs> that foreshadows an episode that's coming in the future where we're going to be talking about some wusha shit, but that's later. That's later. I can't believe we actually got like three of these four down. We're one episode away from yeah. completing the Trek series. We did it. So good. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you guys both so much for coming on to discuss, and thank you all so much for listening. If you enjoyed this conversation, we hope that you will check out our other films on Daisies, on The Cremator, our last episode, which was on Guardians of the Galaxy, and our forthcoming episode on Marketa Lazarova. And eventually, I think we're talking about Joyland. I think eventually we're also going to be talking about a little bit of Alfred Hitchcock's Vertigo. So stay tuned for all that and have a great rest of your day. Do check out Riley over on Jams and Tea on YouTube, where they talk about music every week. Bye, everybody. Bye. Don't forget to pay for your drinks.